Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This week, speaker Pastor Brian Robertson delivers the sixth message from the series, Portraits, Jesus, Who Are You? You can find the sermon outline and video for this message at enewlife.com or the New Life Church Kahana mobile app. How many of you this morning, you're, uh, you're, you like those CSI shows, those mystery shows? Anybody like CSI? There's like, what, 144 of those on now? <laughs> just, just, a, just a little w- word, they're all the same. They just put a different city in front of it. It's just FYI, okay? Well, John 5 has that kind of feel. That's, the, that's how we're going to look at this today. And there's a... Uh, Guide is always in your worship folder this morning. I'd encourage you to take that out and follow. There is a crime in this chapter. There is an investigation. There are charges made, testimony given, and all of it is about Jesus. The more I start thinking about this CSI idea, the, the, I realize that the theme song to the original CSI, it's no, not on anymore, right? Not, okay. Now the, only the other 143 are still on. Uh, Remember the theme song to that one? It, it works with our series. It's who are you? Ooh, 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 right? It's time change Sunday. Give me a break. I was here at nine. Where were you? What a time change. Okay, time change and rain. Combination, not good. In Florida, we called this liquid sunshine. It was just a matter of mindset, okay? It's, gotta, it's all relative, right? So we're going to look at this this morning, and we're going to look at it in that way, that this is really a crime scene investigation. First, let's go back to the beginning of why this gospel was even written. Why did John write it? What was his point? Well, in John 20, he gives us the answer to this. John 20, 31 says, these are written, these words, this book, this gospel is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the point of the book of John. It points to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who gives life to those who believe. As we come to chapters 5 and then next week chapter 6, we come face to face with the antagonized Jews who in hostility begin to move to persecute and murder Jesus. John's purpose in this gospel is to present Christ as the Son of God, and that becomes the controversy. In our studies, the last few weeks of chapters 1 through 4, we see that there's been, not, I wouldn't call it a great reception to Jesus, but certainly not a hostile one. But now, in this chapter, it starts to heat up. And we find that beginning in chapters 5 and 6, that that reception, however tepid it might have been by the leadership, certainly the people received it well, there is now open rejection and hostility toward Christ. So let's look first at this crime. What is this crime that's been committed? 
we see here in verses 1 through 9 what takes place. There is this feast in Jerusalem, and Jesus is a good Jew, would have gone to Jerusalem for this feast. Now, we don't know exactly what this feast is, likely either the Passover in April or the Feast of Tabernacles in October. Take your choice. There was this feast, and because he was a good Jew, Jesus went to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And he goes by this gate, by way of this gate, and there is this pool there called Bethesda, or the House of Mercy. And it was a place where invalids would go. Those were her blind, lame, and paralyzed are the three specific groups that we see. We don't know exactly where this location is of this gate and this pool, but we do know that it must have been very commonly known, especially due to the events that are said to take place there. See, what was happening is many people were waiting at this pool for some kind of therapeutic healing from those waters. And there are places in the world today like this that have that idea attached to them, a sort of therapeutic value. Many people go to places like mineral baths and hot springs, right? There are also shrines in Europe that we hear about where there's supposed to be water that is sort of magical and does a healing work. So this isn't an abnormal thing uh, that there be some of this. Perhaps there it was, some sort of therapeutic value in the hot, a kind of hot spring event there. Evidently, people had found there was some sort of soothing quality at this pool and also, I believe, a superstition had arisen there perhaps about these waters. Now, if you look carefully at your scriptures, you'll see, as you're reading along, you'll be reading in verse 3, and if you look carefully, you realize there's something missing. What is missing is the last part of verse 3 and the entire verse 4. It just skips from 3 to 5. Anybody ever wonder what's going on? Well, we have a subplot going on, and it is the case of the missing Bible verse, okay? So we're going to look at that for just a moment. See... Verse, the end of verse 3, beginning of verse 4, are not in the earliest Greek manuscripts. So it's not considered a part of Scripture. That would be a message in all of itself, is how the Scriptures were put together. But suffice it to say that if, if words in certain sections or even whole letters or books were not in early manuscripts, that was one of the reasons they would have been not counted as Scripture. And these few words are like that. Here's what they say. The end of verse 3 would have ended this way. We would start at, in, the, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Verse 4, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So, a little bit of quick history. Let's figure this out, see if we can figure out what's going on here. As I said, this wasn't in the early manuscripts. There is this idea of waiting for the moving of the water. Evidently, this pool was fed by an intermittent spring, and the water that flowed into the pool at these intermittent times would flow in, and it would cause bubbling. And that bubbling was bringing in fresh water, and people believed that that was the stuff that had the healing power. They also believe that an angel was the one who would make it bubble that way. Now, I don't believe that's true. Most theologians believe that that is not true, that it's merely a superstition, that as scriptures were being handwritten out, that some scribe wanted to add that in, <clears throat> wrote it in the margin even, 
You know, some of us do that, right? We do it on our sermon notes every week. There's what the, the speaker puts in there that we want you to get, but then you say, he'll say something, something said, and you think, oh, I want to put that in too. And if it's like my notes, I'll, I'll put it in the margin, right? So I don't forget that. It's not part of the main thing, but it's something that was important to me. Well, that's probably what happened. Some scribes would have put it directly in the text in kind of a version of, in that language, their version of parentheses, parenthetical matter. You see, this is a strange idea. It's foreign to anything that we know about the New Testament. It just doesn't seem to fit. Jesus doesn't even address it in the passage. And if you look carefully at what the lame man who was healed, he, he doesn't really refer to that either, other than that he's been trying to get in the water, right? So, back to the passage. We've figured out what's going on here. That there is this superstition, at best, that the water has this healing power. Well, let's look at the crime. The crime is actually a miracle that's performed by Jesus. And that sets off this persecution. Sets off this rejection of Christ. I believe that Jesus does this purposely to directly, for uh, the purpose of confronting Jewish legalism. He wants to get a response out of them. He wants them to react. And he knows how they're going to react too. We clearly see the contrast in this passage of the compassion of Jesus for the poor man and the lack of interest at all in the man on the part of the Jewish leaders. Look what happens. So this man has been there how many years? 38 years. Jesus sees him lying there and he says to him, do you want to be healed? So Jesus asks this unusual question of this man. Do you want to be healed? Now this is a, this is a guy that's been there for 38 years. Life expectancy in that time was only 40. So he's been there, we're thinking, most of his life, right? Well, he's been waiting there these years to be healed, so this seems like a strange question. Well, I think it's a great question. Because what Jesus is saying is, do you, are you ready for something different? Are you content with your life as it is? Well, we see the mind of Christ here. He, what's he communicating? He's communicating love and concern for a person who had been like this probably you know, longer than he had not, probably his entire life. He basically is saying, man, you've been sick for 38 years and I care about you. Would you like to be well? Would you like to be different? But as Jesus does, I believe he's asking an even deeper question, one that I believe he asks of everyone that he'd call to himself. Are you content with your life are you content? Is this what you want? Is this what you want your life to be about? Have you grown used to how life is for you? You know, maybe it's hard. Maybe life's just been hard and you think, well, this is how it's been. This is how it's always going to be. I got a big black cloud hovering over me. It's always been there. This is how it is. I've kind of lost hope. Or maybe life is just fine. Maybe your life's, you know, kind of you think it's kind of blessed and it's cool and it, it, nothing big has happened and you don't see any need of complicating it up with Jesus because Jesus will complicate up your life. He's saying to this man and to some here today, can I make a difference? You know, I could make a difference in your life. You can be healed. Are you ready for that? So the man answers him. A little side note here. Consider this. Think about these religious people. I'm very fascinated by these 
these religious people. If the waters could indeed heal, why were they not there regularly getting people into those waters? Why not have a ministry for this out of the synagogue? Give it a cool logo and an acrostic name, like get the people out into the water ministry. Wouldn't that be a good idea? See, we, we can look at that and go, oh, well, we, we would have done it. See, we're never the dumb people in the Bible. We're, we're always, we look at it and go, I would have never done that. I would done. Let's not fool ourselves, right? Why, why wouldn't they have done that if that was true? And if, as it appears, this is superstition, why were they not there telling the people the truth? Don't waste your time here. This is doing you no good. Well, you know, don't we do that? We, we, we do this. Because we know of a place. We know of a person who gives complete healing of the soul. And yet, do we, do each of us have our ministry to those people who need to hear the gospel? Who need to hear the good news? Do we, are we in the places where they are pointing them to this healing? I think we get, start to get a glimpse of their real focus here. Interestingly, the man never actually says yes or no. He simply tells of his plight, I have nobody to help me. Well, Jesus is there to help. And in a way that this man could never have expected, Jesus heals him and says, get up and walk. Get up and walk. After 38 years, can you imagine this? After 38 years, get up and walk. This is pretty amazing, right? This is thrilling, good stuff. Not so fast. Look at the last sentence of verse 9. So he tells him, the man does what he tells him. I mean, if somebody tells you, you're healed, get up and walk, you're going to at least give it a try, right? So he gets up, takes up his bed and walks. Now that day was the Sabbath. Okay? This would, there'd be a commercial now at that, at that point. Let's stop. Sell you toothpaste and then come back to find out what happened. The Jewish leaders are not happy here. Remember, Jesus knew that this would be the case, and it's going just as he planned. It was the Sabbath. All together now, big gasp. <sighs> Good. <laughs> the gasp at nine was kind of a yawn. Um, verses 10 through 17. So what happens? There's this investigation into this. The Jews said to the man who healed, they get to him fast. It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. A little intimidation going on here, right? See, according to the Mishnah, which was the wonderful book that had been put out to explain how to obey the law. So it had hundreds upon hundreds of rules that you had to follow in order to obey the law because we want to make sure people get this right for their own good. Okay? Well... It said, literally, that a couch or a bed could be carried only if it had someone on it. Okay? So, here's what's happening. So, you could be an invalid as long as you were on a bed and somebody else was carrying it. That was okay to carry that on the Sabbath. But if you got healed and carried it yourself, you couldn't do that. 
somebody missed something there. At this point, they're intimidating this man. What are you doing? You, 38 years you've been sitting here, and the first thing you do is you mess up. You blow it. You break a rule. You see, they place the blame on him. Now, this animosity is going to shift to Jesus in a moment, as we'll see, but watch. What, what it, don't you want to just go, what is your problem? Right? What is your problem? Awesome healing, right? Well, here's the problem. Legalism has no place for miracles. And it has no place for anyone who doesn't look a certain way, act a certain way, and stay in line with the rules. There, is, there will always be detractors to the word and the work of God. There will always be detractors to the work of God. And unfortunately, many of them are right in the middle of the church. Okay, so they start this investigation. The man says to them, uh, yeah, this guy said, uh, uh, I don't know who he was, but he said, take up my bed and walk, so uh, I did it. Well, he didn't know who it was because Jesus, in his humbleness, had backed into the crowd after doing this and kind of disappeared. But afterwards, sometime later, Jesus finds him in the temple you know, my guess is he'd gone there to try to do penance for this somehow. Uh, take a few shekels uh, into the temple because I blew it. I should have just stayed crippled because I was, at least I didn't blow the law. So he's at the temple and Jesus says to him, see, you are well. Hey, look, you're still walking, dude. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So Jesus sees him again and says this interesting thing makes this interesting statement to him. Now, Jesus is not telling him, do better or you're going to go back to being lame. That's not what he's saying. He is saying, I just, you need to know. You're well, you're physically well, but sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. He is saying there's, an import, there's more important issue here than physical healing. It is spiritual. It is about your walk with God. If you do not deal with this, if you do not completely give over your life to the authority of God, you're going to a place far worse than the pool that you've been at for all these years. So they have this little encounter, and verse 15, the man goes away and tells the Jews that it was Jesus. Verse 16, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, apparently now they're face-to-face, as Jesus does, takes it a step further, my father is working until now and I am working. And the hatred shifts. They know who has done this. Jesus has done this, dramatic pause, on the Sabbath. Thank you. This sums up the mission of Jesus, doesn't it? It's as though Jesus is saying, you, you thought, this is how he did things, right? You thought healing on the Sabbath was bad, now I'm going to declare myself to be equal with God. This is, this is getting worse, right? The investigation is going deeper, and the Jewish leaders are finding out more than they bargained for. The Jews were stuck on issues of secondary importance. Here was a man who'd been healed miraculously by Jesus, and the only thing they can think of is that he did it on the Sabbath. They lost sight of the more important question. What is the important question here? Who is this guy? 
Who is this guy? We've been reading about a Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures who will come and do these kind of things, who will come in this kind of man, you know, who is, wouldn't you just say that? See, we're the smart people, right? Not the dumb people. We would have said that. We would have asked that question. And now he's saying this stuff about, first he does it on the Sabbath. Now he's saying this stuff about being God, that he's equal with God the Father. Well, now this starts getting really serious. So this charge is brought, verse 18. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, it says, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus says, I am equal with God. I am fully divine. Now, the Father and the Son we know have different functions, but he and I are one. What a statement. If anybody ever says, well, Jesus never said he was God, right here in chapter 5. And I wonder if Jesus, I, you know, I just think in the back of his mind, he's got to be thinking, I've now said I'm e- I am God. I am equal with him. Wait till you hear the part about the Holy Spirit. So Jesus responds to the charge. And what does he do? He admits it. He admits it all. He says, you're right. I am saying exactly what you think I'm saying. And the rest of the chapter is all Jesus If you have a uh, certain kind of Bible, the letters are printed in a different color, right? They're red, okay? That means that Jesus is speaking these words. And in the next several verses, the rest of this chapter that we're going to look at, he makes statements about himself. He calls corroborative witnesses. And then he uh, makes some indictments against his accusers. So let's first look at these statements he makes about himself. Verse 19, he says, I am the Son of God. I am the Son of God. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Verse 20, I do the works of the Father. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. I am not only the Son of God, I do the works of the Father. Verse 21, I am the life giver. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. See, Jesus is digging this deeper, isn't He? He's saying, uh, not only am I claiming to be equal with God, I'm saying that I'm the Son of God, I'm doing the works of the Father, and that I have the power to give life. Verses 22, and then He says it again in 27, He says, and, He's making this worse for Himself, I am the final judge. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgments to the Son. Verse 27, he has given authority, him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. I'm the final judge. You are standing, it's, it's though he's saying to these Jewish leaders, you're standing here judging me. I'm going to be your final judge. Verse 23, I am the one worthy of worship. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I am the one worthy of worship. Pretty bold, right? Verses 24 through 26, I am the word and the giver of life. Whoever hears my word, verse 24, 
and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. He says, truly, truly, you better listen up. He does this twice. He does it again in verse 25. An hour is come and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. I'm the word, the giver of life. Verse 26, he has granted or authorized the Son, me, to have life in himself. This echoes John chapter 1, verse 4, where John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Jesus says in verses 28 through 29, I'm the final resurrection. He just keeps going, doesn't he? Hey, and by the way, I am the final resurrection. I am going to get, raise people up in the resurrection, some to resurrection of life, some to the resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, I am the one sent from the Father. Listen to what he says, though. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And if you know the word, you know that Jesus uses these kind of phrases often. Not my will, but yours. Well, these words of Jesus in many ways speak for themselves. They say what Jesus meant to say very clearly. But I do want to make a couple clarifying observations that will help you a little bit. He uses two phrases about himself. One, he's the son of God. That's used to describe himself in his deity and oneness with the Father, that he's authorized to give life and salvation. That's applying to his deity. But then he uses another phrase, he's the son of man. And that's used to describe himself as truly human, given authority to carry out final judgment over man. They are not contradictory statements. They are two sides of the same issue, that he's the Son of God and the Son of Man. Jesus' teaching, what he says here are the truths that will bring life to those who have been dead in sin and now hear and believe, but they must be believed to have an effect. See, when Jesus says, those who hear, he's not talking about just knowing what he said, but deciding to live fully in the truth of what he said. Parents, you know the difference, right? What it means for your children to hear what you say and to hear what you say. What's the, what, how do you know that they actually hear what you said? That they do something about it. That there's a, there's a level of obedience and there's not just, uh-huh, I hear you. You know, because we all know what that means. That means two hours later, uh, the trash, right? Okay, I heard, but I didn't hear Jesus is saying, those who hear, those who, who do something about it, those who say yes to this and then obey. Well, now, Jesus, you know, he's talked about this judgment in verse 30. But instead of picking up on this, the judge, this justice of his judgment in the following verses, what he picks up on from verse 30 is the emphasis on God orientation as opposed to self-orientation. God exaltation is opposed to self exaltation. He says, My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this theme of, if you will, not me but God, 
will extend all the way to the end of the chapter. Here's what this does. This lays us bare, goes to the heart of why humans have such a hard time believing in Jesus. What Jesus does in verses 31 through 36 is show that even though he is not his own decisive witness, nevertheless, he does have witnesses to the truth. He's going to go on. He's going to say, okay, here's what I've come for. I'm going to give you some witnesses. In other words, human testimony is never decisive about who God is, but I'm, I'm going to speak this way so that you can understand a little more. Maybe this will lead you to the truth. Well, look at his corroborating witnesses. And I practiced really hard to say that word right, so I'm not going to try it again. Okay? Verses 31 through 36, the beginning of verse 36, John the Baptist, he points to John the Baptist. He says, there is another who bears witness about me. What did John say? Remember at the very beginning of, of this book, he stood and he says, what? Behold. This is, here's the Messiah, here he is, here's the one we've been waiting for. He bears witness about Jesus. He said, you sent to John and he was born witness to the truth, verse 33. Not that the witness, the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you can be saved. Then he says, now you thought... uh, you know, there was something about John that you listened to for a while, so I'm pointing you to what he said. Verse 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. I've got another one. Here's another witness. If you're not convinced of John's testimony, verses 36 through 40, uh, 38, God the Father. These works that the Father is accomplishing through me, these miracles that you've heard about and that we're standing here discussing today, The stuff that's been going on, these things that you're seeing, these come from the Father. They're a testimony of God the Father of who I am. God's power through these miracles, through changed lives, is His testimony of me. Well, then He says, okay, if, if that's not enough, look to Moses. Verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is that they bear witness of me. Jesus proclaims, raises up the importance and the authority of Scripture. Jesus is saying the Scriptures you study, that you say you know, are about me. The, 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 the reality of the, the Scriptures that you study are, is standing right in front of you. I am the fulfillment of the prophecies. Now is the time. I have come. See me. Believe in me. Follow me. Verses 45 through 47, he goes a little further. He says, now, do you think, do not think that I'll accuse you to the Father. There is no one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote about me. He, in a sense, is going, you're even bad Jews because you're not following Moses. If you don't believe his writings, you won't believe my word. See, he think, see what he's saying in John 1, 1, the way this book began? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I am the word. You say you want to know God. You were supposed to be scholars of the scriptures. The scriptures stand in front of you. Here I am. 
Moses said in Deuteronomy 18.15, he wrote this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Guess what? That's not happening. (laughs) Moses pointed to him and he's saying, Do you understand? Look here. I am the fulfillment of all the things that you say you understand and know. And I believe there's a final witness. It's not, he's not referred to in this passage, but there's the witness of the Spirit. John 15, 26 says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus does not address it right here, but I think it's important to know that we read this passage with the help of the Holy Spirit, who has come as our Helper, our Helper in seeing and accepting the truth. You see, that voice, that movement inside of us, when we hear the word, is the work of the Holy Spirit pointing you to Jesus. The Spirit is a vital witness of who Jesus is. And so, so far, this is grace, right? Jesus has come to heal and to save Look to me. I, I, am, I am the word of God come in the flesh. But Jesus is going to balance this out with some very hard truth. And he moves into these last verses in an indictment of his accusers. This is really the painful meat of the text in verses 37 through 47. If this is true, if God is the witness to Jesus' reality, why are those who seem to know God the best not believing? That's the question. That is what the rest of this passage is about. It's an amazingly relentless indictment. And it has amazing focus on the one main cause for unbelief. And as we move on in the next few moments, it would be a big mistake for any of us to think this is mainly for others and not for you and me. You see, this is where we learn the deep things about the corruption of our heart. Six times at least this indictment comes What does Jesus say? Here's the indictment. You don't have God's word in you. You don't believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 38. You don't have the word in you. You you think you do. You know the word. You don't believe in the one who he sent. I had a man come up to me after the first celebration and say, you know, I got to the place in my life a couple years ago where God said to me, you know my word, but you don't know me. You know the scriptures, but you don't know Jesus. Second indictment, verse 40, you don't want to come to me. See, he says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You're refusing this, you don't want to come to me. This indicates a deliberate rejection of who, of Jesus as the source of life. Literally, you don't want me. You, you are purposely rejecting me. You read the Old Testament, which points everywhere to me as the fulfillment, but you don't see it and you don't believe it because you don't want to believe it. Third accusation, indictment of his accusers, you don't have the love of God in you. You don't have the word. You don't believe. You don't really believe in God 
because he's the one that sent me. You don't want to come to me. You don't have the love of God in you. You wonder if Jesus was thinking back to what had just happened at the pool. Where's your love? You're haranguing this guy because he got healed and he happened to pick up his bed. The only thing he owned in life. And you're going to get on him because he's had the gall to break a rule and pick it up. You don't have the love of God in you. Fourth indictment, you don't believe me. I've come in my Father's name, you don't receive me. Then he says, if another comes in my name, you'll receive him. We'll talk about that in just a moment. You, you don't receive me, you reject me. You want another kind of Messiah. The kind who comes not so humbly, not so lowly, not so full of implications for this death to self of his followers. So you don't receive me. See, he was a hard Messiah. They wanted an easy one. Then he says, you cannot believe How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. You cannot believe. The question has no answer here in the text because the question is really a statement. You can't believe while you're enslaved to the craving to receive glory from one another. See, he's saying you're all about what other people think of you and what you think about yourself and not what God thinks. Final indictment. You don't really believe Moses. (laughs) You don't believe me. Now let's just go back for a moment to verse 40. You refuse to come to me. This is literally, you do not want to come to me. Here's what I want us to think about. That what we want has a massive effect on what we are able to believe. The root issue for these people and for us is not intellectual evidence. That does matter, but that's not the problem. Because he says, okay, you intellectually, you kind of wanted to rejoice for a while in this whole John the Baptist thing, got it. But now this is over. You don't want to come to me. This This is why Jesus, this issue is why Jesus started where he did with Nicodemus in chapter three. You must be born again. Your deep wants have to be transformed, Nicodemus. The Holy Spirit must come into your life, take away the deep rebellion against God and His Word and replace it with, well, with what? Why why didn't they want to come to Jesus? Why why don't some of you here today want to come to Jesus? What, What did they want so much instead that made believing and coming possible? Well, verse 44, 43 gives some insights. Verse 44 says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. That is, you can't believe. Why? Because you love the glory of man, not the glory of God. You don't want Jesus because you want human praise. You don't want Jesus because you want to be the center of everything. You want to be in control. You want to be exalted You want to be made much of. You you love being somebody. Pick whichever of those fits best. They all fit me apart from sovereign grace. This, Jesus said, is the root cause of unbelief. You see, we get into it's all about me, don't we? When we look at the gospel, it's all about Jesus. Well, how does this work? Verse 43, I've come in my Father's name, You don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. What's he talking about? Well, 
Why would they receive a Messiah who would come in his own name? See, Jesus said, I'm coming in the name of the Father, the God of Abraham, the God that you read about in the, in the Old Testament. I am the fulfillment of prophecy. But he says, you, you, would, you would accept a Messiah if he came in his own name. Well, because if the Messiah were like that, he would be like them. He would be an endorsement of the way that they already are. He would make them feel okay with their love of their own name and their own self-exaltation. You see, the Messiah would come kind of like this. You guys are so awesome. You are so, you have such a spirituality. You know what? I need you to be a better you. That's what that Messiah would say. Just be the best you you can be and keep following those rules because those are cool. See, they would have accepted that. Why? Because they'd go, doggone if we didn't get it right. Isn't that awesome? That is awesome. We are awesome. Mm. Let's just tell everybody how awesome we are and how we can just be better if we're just a better us Sound familiar? You see, he says that's the kind of Messiah they would accept. But here's Jesus who comes in the name of the Father. In his humanity, he humbles himself and becomes obedient to whom? To the Father. How humble? Well, how obedient? Well, we're told, obedient unto death, even death on the cross. You see, these leaders, they see it coming. And they didn't like it. You see, they realized that if the Messiah is like this, then they will have to be like this. We would have to give up our own intentions and definitions of our spirituality. We'd have to give up the comfort of our rules and how they make us feel good about ourselves. If God is pleased with this kind of self-denial in the Messiah, then he's going to look for it in us. We don't want that, therefore we will not come. Now, this is not a uniquely Jewish problem. This is a human problem. This is my problem. Perhaps my main problem, and this is your problem. Perhaps your main problem, and it is bondage. Jesus came into the world to set us free from slavery to self-approval and the praise of others, and it all being about us. You see, when you come to Jesus in faith, you surrender the right to claim any glory for yourself. Faith comes to Christ without any claim to be glorious, to be praised, to be, make it all about me. The desire for human praise is a great obstacle to faith. And it must die. You see, when you have tasted the beauty of God and the approval of God in Christ, the addiction to human approval is broken and continues to break, doesn't it? And we are free. May God open our eyes to the glory of Christ and awaken a spiritual taste for his living water and give us faith and set us free. And so this evidence comes now to you. You are now the jury. You must deliberate within yourself. Here's the issue. Your deliberation. Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, 
who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is our deliberation today. Who is Jesus? Do you need to declare today that Jesus is the Christ? He is who he says he is and is there, therefore you must give up your whole life to him. Only for his glory, setting yourself aside. Maybe you've never given your whole life to Jesus to follow him as Lord, as the ruler, as the boss over your life. You need to do that today. Because he passionately loves you and gave himself for you. Let me say this. I believe that there are some in this room who have been like these religious people who say you know the truth, who understand the word, but who have never truly denied yourself and followed Jesus. Sure, you're in church every week. Maybe you're a New Life ministry partner. Maybe you know the word inside out, but you know that it's really been all about you then you don't know Jesus. Not this Jesus. Not the real one. You need to do that today. Do you need to say today, as someone who's already a follower of Jesus, you're desiring to have full control, uh, give him full control, but you're in the middle of a struggle with the flesh, an attack of the enemy, with that piece of you that still seems to fight back against his lordship and his control. You need to deal with that today, too. He says to us, who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your declarations of who you are. God, I pray for each of us today that we would examine ourselves. Really, the, as a jury, we, we don't declare who you are. We have to figure out who we are. For you are the Son of the living God who has come to take away the sin of the world. Help us examine ourselves. May we be truthful with ourselves. May we come to you. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's Word and seek to know Him better through the Gospel. Our prayer is that the Gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the Word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.